Good morning. In today's headlines, a second strike on the Jabalia refugee camp. The IDF claiming another Hamas commander taken out. And another visit by State Secretary Antony Blinken. A former diplomatic advisor previews the trip. Congressman Chair Jim Jordan races to root out alleged obstruction of Biden family investigations. More on his latest probe into the U.S. intelligence community. Embattled Congressman George Santos dodges another expulsion. Hear his sentiments after the vote and why a group of Republicans came to Representative Tlaib's defense. A poisonous ideology, that's what a Cornell law professor says is at the root of anti-Semitic threats on campus. We spoke to him to find out more. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning for me. Also, I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Thursday, November 2nd. And Evelyn, Israel is definitely making progress on its goals to eradicate Hamas, first taking out the ringleader of the terror attack and now the head of the anti-tank missile unit. Right. And that one question that still remains is who will govern, actually govern Gaza if Hamas is eliminated. Yeah. And I'm going to talk to the former diplomatic advisor to find out a little bit more about Blinken's ideas for that. That's coming up. Right, but for now, our top news today, some Americans finally allowed to leave Gaza and another strike in a refugee camp targeting Hamas leaders. Entities Arian Pastar has an update on the Israel-Hamas war. Over 300 foreign passport holders left Gaza through the Rafah crossing into Egypt on Wednesday. Some injured Palestinians were also allowed to leave. A U.S. passport holder describes what it was like inside Gaza. My name is Dr. Fatem Al-Hajan. I came in Gaza, Palestine here since three months ago for a visit. After that, the war goes up. We spent here three months without any minimum parameter for the life. No water, no food, no shelter, nothing, nothing. The U.S. State Department on Wednesday said it can't give any number on how many Americans left Gaza so far. The department said in total 400 American citizens are in Gaza trying to leave. A reporter asked if Hamas is getting anything from the U.S. for letting its citizens go. The United States is not in a position and has not provided any concessions at all to Hamas. Egypt, Israel and Hamas brokered a deal saying 7,500 foreign passport holders would be allowed to leave Gaza within the next two weeks. And the U.S. State Department previously said the reason they can't just all leave right now it's because Hamas doesn't let them leave. Also on Wednesday, another attack hit the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza. An Israeli army spokesperson said there was a very senior Hamas commander in that area. We warned Palestinians two weeks ago to evacuate that specific area because there was going to be major combat operations. They should have heeded the warning and they should have left. The sad reality that is unfolding now is that the civilians in Gaza are paying the price for the atrocities of Hamas. We are fighting a battle here to defend ourselves. We cannot allow a situation for Hamas to continue to exist after the atrocities of October 7th. And in order for us to be able to safeguard ourselves, we have to eradicate Hamas wherever they are, even if they're hiding in tunnels underneath uh, populated areas. Israel's military also commented on a previous strike on the camp, which killed a Hamas commander, saying the fact that the attack destroyed tunnels under the camp proves that Hamas is using civilians in the camp as human shields. 
Hamas is responding to the attacks, threatening to seriously hurt Israeli hostages. The Palestinian Hamas leader says Israel would pay with the life of their hostages and that the hostages will be exposed to destruction and death. The Iranian regime on Wednesday also threatening Israel, indicating it may expand the conflict. If the genocide and war crimes against civilians are not stopped immediately, then we are very close to the point in the Middle East where a decisive and significant decision will be made. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Wednesday said Israel would continue until the Hamas terrorist organization is defeated. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Now for some analysis of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's second visit to Israel following the October 7th terrorist attack by Hamas, we bring in live Aryeh Lightstone, a former senior advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel. Aryeh, thank you for your time today. Blinken is calling for a revitalized Palestinian authority to govern Gaza after the war if Israel succeeds in toppling Hamas. How likely is Israel to support that idea? Zero uh, percent out of 100 uh, the revitalized Palestinian Authority still has a law on their books, uh, colloquially known as pay to slay. They pay families of terrorists additional money based upon the amount of Jews and civilians that they kill. I think Israel learned a valuable lesson on October 7th. When people say that they wish to murder you, one should pay attention to them. There is no appetite for any two-state solution based upon the current parameters of the Palestinian and their bankrupt leadership. So what's an alternative to that idea? Well, one of the things that we have to do in the West is look at how this came about. We still have this thing called a refugee camp. How are people who live in a Palestinian-controlled uh, area for the last 17 years still considered refugees? Based upon what? And they are still educated based upon UN refugee uh, policies that teach hate. So if we want to undo this crisis of hatred, this crisis of, of bar barbarism, then we need to begin at the very root. And how do we educate people correctly? How do we grow them correctly? And how do we ultimately run a place that they want to live? So does Israel have any desire to participate in the governing of Gaza after the war? Zero. Uh, they would like the Palestinians to figure this out themselves. They would like other regional entities to come up and to step up to the forefront. But at the end of the day, both of those are highly unlikely. So we have to get creative in terms of what we can do so we don't return to this, what they like to call a cycle of violence. It's not a cycle of terrorism uh, by Hamas. And Blinken is also calling on regional partners and international agencies to be involved in governing Gaza. In the meantime, how can they help? Well, the first thing that should have happened three weeks ago is Egypt should have completely and unconditionally opened up the Rafah case. People say that uh, Gaza is completely surrounded by Israel. That's factually inaccurate. There is a legitimate and large border with Egypt. Egypt immediately should have allowed any Palestinian or anybody in Gaza to leave, set up refugee and humanitarian options for them there, and allow Israel to defeat Hamas and, as they say, liberate the Palestinians uh, from these terrorists. Just a side note here, very briefly, why do you think Egypt opened the Rafah Gate now? Uh, I think after enough humanitarian pressure on their Americans there, their French there, their Russians there, Ukrainians there, at some point in time, it's clear that Hamas just doesn't have Jews held hostage, which apparently the world is relatively fine with, but has other people also held hostage, and they're willing to extend in more pressure to enable Egypt to open up that gate. The fact that Egypt hasn't done this for three weeks 
and purports to care about the Palestinians. I believe the direct quote from the president of Egypt is, he's willing to sacrifice millions of Palestinian lives to not have to open up his border. So Blinken is saying that there's about 400 Americans still in Gaza and they want to get out. And he's saying that Hamas is preventing them from doing so. Do you expect his visit to contain some efforts to help them leave? Absolutely. I do believe that Blinken cares about each and every American and will apply what pressure he can. Unfortunately, President Biden's last trip to the region, Egypt, Jordan, and the Palestinian Authority all canceled meetings with him. If they won't meet with our president, how much leverage do you think that we have over those countries? So I want to talk about Blinken's visit with Saudi Arabia's defense minister in Washington here. The U.S. has rejected calls for a ceasefire, but there are maybe other ways that the U.S. and Saudi Arabia can work together to cool tensions in the region. Do you think so? I absolutely do think so. I think that Saudi Arabia is the solution and not the problem. What has happened under the leadership of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has transitioned Saudi over the last five, six, seven years to a place of innovation and modernization. I believe that they feel the threat that Hamas poses, that Iran poses, that Hezbollah poses to the entire region is for the hearts and minds of 1.8 billion Muslims. We need as Americans for Saudi and UAE to win in terms of convincing those Muslims that this is absolutely the correct way forward and not from these tyrannical um, uh, um, uh, leaders in, in Tehran who are ultimately controlling uh, these issues. Saudi Arabia is a moderate voice in expressing that Israel has a right to exist, and some analysts are saying that that needs to be amplified. But what role do you think Saudi Arabia can play in preventing what the Biden administration fears, a wider regional war? Well, I think only the U.S. can prevent there being a wider regional war. Bring the, the uh, carrier groups to the Mediterranean was spectacular leadership by the United States of America. But now we have to make sure that the world knows that we will act if we need to act. And that involves being resolute and concrete. Every time we ask for a pause, which is President Biden's new word for ceasefire, that weakens Israel. We need to be giving Israel unconditional, unlimited support and Israel will take care of the problem on its own. The second the world demonstrates or views weakness or daylight in between us, the United States of America, and Israel, they will capitalize on that weakness, and this war will spread. Let's hope that it does not. And there is a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel there with Saudi Arabia expressing that it is still on board for this mega deal to normalize relations between it and Israel after the war. Ari Lightstone, a former senior advisor to the U.S. Ambassador to Israel, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. And continuing with the situation in Gaza, NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on evacuation efforts and the latest developments in the U.S. response to the war in Israel. President Joe Biden lauded the exit of American citizens and others from Gaza on Wednesday. We're in a situation where safe passage for wounded Palestinians and foreign nationals to exit Gaza has started. The president says the process will continue in the coming days. Working nonstop to get Americans out of Gaza as soon and as safely as possible. Biden also addressed hostages, including American citizens, being held. My administration continues to work around the clock to reunite those families. The House of Representatives passed two important measures on Wednesday. The first is the Hamas International Financing Prevention Act. 
It aims to sanction countries and individuals that support the terrorist group Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad terrorist organization. If the bill becomes law, the president has to impose sanctions on those who support these groups within 180 days. It also says that countries supporting Hamas won't get U.S. assistance for at least a year. The second measure is a resolution that strongly condemns Iran's nuclear program. It strives to prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons and calls for doing whatever it takes to stop them from getting them. The resolution mentions that Iran has enriched uranium to weapons-grade levels, calling it a serious threat to the U.S. and its allies, including Israel. Meanwhile, Speaker Mike Johnson said Wednesday he plans to hold a vote on another measure, a standalone Israel aid bill. The bill seeks to provide over $14 billion for Israel by cutting IRS funding. The House could vote on the bill and pass it with Republican support as soon as Thursday. But it's unlikely to become law, as top Senate Democrat Chuck Schumer said Tuesday the bill would be dead on arrival in the upper chamber. Johnson says he understands some Democrats want to bulk up the IRS, but that he plans to have a direct conversation with Schumer speaking on Fox News. But I think if you put this to the American people and they weigh the two needs, I think they're going to say standing with Israel and protecting the innocent uh, over there is in our national interest and is a more immediate need than IRS agents. Democrats have signaled more support for Biden's combined aid bill request. That would include funding for Ukraine, increased security on the southern border, efforts to push back against China in the Indo-Pacific, as well as money for Israel. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan subpoenas two pro-ESG climate groups over potential violations of antitrust laws and collusive agreements. And a group of Democrats rally to keep indicted Congressman George Santos in the House. And 23 Republicans come to Representative Rashida Tlaib's defense. In New York, Donald Trump Jr. takes the stand. Why his testimony is significant to the New York Attorney General's case and who else testified. A judge calls surveillance videos allegedly showing ballot box stuffing shocking and overturns a Connecticut election. We have the details. Welcome back. The House of Representatives shot down another attempt to expel Congressman George Santos yesterday. 31 Democrats voted against his removal. GOP members blocked Democrats' attempts in May and opted to send it to the House Ethics Committee instead. Santos is accused of 23 federal crimes, including conspiracy, money laundering, and wire fraud. He has pleaded not guilty and says he will not resign. Here's Santos after the vote. The fact that we had today more Democrats than Republicans vote and believe in that tells you everything we need to know. This country is divided. I'm not claiming a victory. I'm just saying that this is a victory for the process. Due process won today, not George Santos. The House also shot down a resolution to censure Representative Rashida Tlaib. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene introduced the resolution that was over accusations of anti-Semitic activity and sympathizing with terrorist organizations. Greene also accused Tlaib of leading an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol complex. Twenty-three Republicans came to her defense along with all Democrats. Some took issue with the insurrection language used by Greene. 
Representative Chip Roy called the resolution deeply flawed in a post on X. He wrote that it made legally and factually unverified claims, specifically the claim of insurrection. Congressman Jim Jordan is leaving known stone unturned as he looks into alleged Biden family influence peddling. He's now investigating if members of the U.S. intelligence community obstructed congressional probes into the Biden family. Jordan says efforts were made to undermine a 2020 Senate investigation into Hunter Biden. And today's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan is looking at a defensive briefing given to Senators Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson in August of 2020. The senators were investigating business dealings of Hunter Biden at the time. Jordan told Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines by letter on Wednesday, the briefing on the threat of Russian disinformation was meant to obstruct congressional oversight into the Biden family's overseas influence peddling operation. He's demanding a list of officials involved, along with related documents, communications and scripts. Senator Grassley says the briefing was irrelevant to his actual investigation and intended to give some media and Democratic colleagues a vehicle to spread a false narrative. The briefing coincided with media reports that the GOP senators were pushing Russian disinformation. The two FBI agents that provided it advised House investigators to look to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, or ODNI, for answers. It's the agency that oversees the intel community and decides if defensive briefings need to be given. Then FBI Deputy Assistant Director for Counterintelligence Nikki Flores testified any analyst in the intel community can submit information to ODNI for a defensive briefing, and that if ODNI approved it, it would be the FBI's responsibility to hold it, regardless of where the intelligence came from. Jordan is also demanding any documents and communications related to a letter sent to the FBI by Democratic lawmakers in July of 2020. The letter raised concerns about foreign interference in the 2020 presidential election and asked a defensive briefing be held for all members of Congress. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Congressman Jordan took action against two pro-ESG climate groups yesterday. The House Judiciary Chair cited potential violations of antitrust laws through collusive agreements. Jordan subpoenaed invest, investor advisory groups as you so and G fans. He wants documents into communications on how the groups advance ESG policies. The congressman says, as you so, has not produced a single document after three months, and that despite promises of cooperation from GFANS, the materials it's provided are inadequate and insufficient. Donald Trump Jr. has testified in the New York civil fraud case. He was authorized to run his father's empire during the presidency, and he did, ending in 2021. Yesterday, he took the stand in the case brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James against him, his brother Eric, and his father. James alleges they conspired to exaggerate their assets by billions of dollars. Entity's legal correspondent Arlene Richards was at the courthouse during his testimony. The AG's team questioned Donald Jr. extensively about his role in the company during the time that his father was in the White House. He was responsible for signing off on statements of financial condition during that time period. I am expecting the team to question him about his role in the valuations of certain Trump properties, which Attorney General Letitia James has said in court filings that one property, for example, was valued at roughly six times the appraised value. 
He has testified that he has no knowledge of ex or expertise in accounting principles or rules that would have needed to be followed in the preparation of the statements. And he has stated several times that he relied on the accountants that the company paid millions of dollars to follow those principles. Former Trump Organization Vice President David Orwitz completed his testimony and testified that Ivanka Trump had significant involvement in loan negotiations for two of the properties. Also, Michael McCarty, CEO of Morgan Stanley Bank and the expert witness for Attorney General Letitia James, he testified about the financial implications of inflated assets. Now, his testimony is expected to help the judge determine the size of the fine that the Trumps are facing. According to McCarty, Trump's misrepresentations cost the banks $168 million in potential interest. But it should be noted that number was reduced to $82.8 million on cross-examination. And also, Judge Arthur Angeron, who is presiding over this trial, stated in a prior ruling that the banks did make, quote, lots of money. But he has said the inflated numbers also cost the banks lots of money because it caused the risk to be higher and therefore the interest rates were also higher. Eric Trump, uh, Donald Jr.'s brother, was expected to begin his testimony on Thursday, but that may be pushed back to Friday. Now, he was supposed to be followed by Ivanka Trump on Friday, but she has filed an appeal to Judge Engelhorn's ordering her to testify. And Donald Trump himself is expected to testify on Monday. A Florida judge is considering delaying former President Trump's classified documents case until after the 2024 presidential election. Florida District Judge Eileen Cannon heard arguments from Trump's lawyer yesterday. Attorney Todd Blanche said everything has changed since the original May 2024 trial date was set. He pointed out that Trump is facing other cases that might overlap with this one. The sheer volume of evidence is also a factor. There are over 3,500 pages of classified material, over a million unclassified documents, several years of security footage, and three gigabytes of emails that the defense must review. The judge said she will consider the information and inform both sides of any schedule changes as soon as possible. At the same time, former President Donald Trump is asking a federal judge to pause his D.C. criminal case as it moves towards a March trial. The request comes as the court considers Trump's bid to dismiss the federal charges related to the 2020 election. He contends he is immune from prosecution for anything he did while president. This request could lead to appeals as Trump's defense team attempts to hold off his two federal criminal trials until after the 2024 November election. Surveillance videos allegedly showing illegal ballot stuffing have upended a mayoral election in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the case where a judge yesterday chucked out the results of the primary just days before the election. The primary was initially won by incumbent Mayor Joe Gannam by 251 votes out of over 8,000 cast. But his opponent John Gomes claimed surveillance videos showed absentee ballot fraud. In one video, he says the vice chair of the Bridgeport Democratic Town Committee, Wanda Jeter, could be seen stuffing ballot drop boxes. In another video, he alleges city council candidate Anita Martinez, who is running on incumbent Mayor Gannon's slate, can also be seen dropping off ballots. Yet in another video, Gomes says city council member Alfredo Castillo can be seen stuffing ballots into a drop box. 
After two weeks of evidentiary hearings, Judge William Clark ordered a new Democratic primary. Clark said the video footage presented by Gomes's attorney was alarming, saying the videos are shocking to the court and should be shocking to all the parties. The footage Clark saw allegedly showed 12 times when Jeter either deposited stacks of ballots herself or gave them to others to deposit. Martinez was seen allegedly dropping off ballots four times. When questioned about the recorded footage in the hearings, both Jeter and Martinez exercised their Fifth Amendment rights, refusing to incriminate themselves. While Gannon vehemently denied any connection to the alleged fraud, Gomes reacted to the ruling, praising his team for taking it to the courts and letting the judicial system do its work, speaking on Fox News. And many people said their votes did not matter, and we said no, it did matter. The Gomes campaign is now focused on Election Day, November 7th. The voters of Bridgeport will show up and we will become victorious. With the ruling delivered just six days before the general election, voters face an unusual scenario. They will vote in the mayoral election on November 7th, but they'll need to go back to the voting booths on a date yet to be determined to select the legitimate Democratic candidate for the same contest. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up next, what is driving the anti-Semitic threats against students at Cornell University? A professor there tells us it has to do with programs that are pushing a questionable ideology. Mayors of several big U.S. cities are heading to Washington today. The aim is to put more pressure on the Biden administration to deal with the growing illegal immigration crisis. Good to have you back. Cornell University in New York has canceled classes tomorrow, this after the arrest of 21-year-old junior Patrick Day. He's accused of posting online messages that included calling for the death of Jewish people and threatening to shoot up a kosher dining hall on campus. The managing editor of the Cornell Daily Sun reacted to the news. Students are extremely disheartened to hear that this is a threat from within our community. And the students we spoke to said that campus as a whole felt off and strange today um, as they're trying to grapple with this news. According to a report by the Cornell Daily Sun, university leaders cited the extraordinary stress on campus as a reason for declaring a community day. The Sun reported increased tensions related to the Hamas-Israel conflict and incidents of anti-Semitic threats. There was also a report of a weapon sighting on campus yesterday. Police searched for a suspect and later called the report unfounded. In an email to campus community members, two university officials called for reflection on how to better create a caring, supportive community. Next, we hear from a professor at Cornell University about the anti-Semitic threats leveled against students. He points to what he calls poisonous ideology as the cause. Take a look. Professor Jacobson, thank you for your time today. Is Cornell University doing enough to address these threats against Jewish students? No, it's not. It's not addressing the underlying problems. It addressed a threat by a student. It called the police. The police investigated. That's great. I'm glad they did that. But how did the student get radicalized at Cornell? And based on his, the threats he posted, he got radicalized by the racial sort of narrative and racial sort of 
racialization of everything that takes place on campus under the rubric of diversity, equity, and inclusion. If you look at his threats, talked about um, settler colonial and all those sort of things that have now become deeply embedded at Cornell. So no, Cornell, I sent a uh, demand to the Cornell Board of Trustees, an open letter to them two weeks ago, saying do three things that address the underlying problem. One is halt these new DEI initiatives until you can understand how it is feeding anti-Jewish sentiment on campus. Two, adopt the International um, Holocaust Remembrance Association working definition of anti-Semitism, which recognizes that, well, criticism of Israel is fair, it, like any other country, when it goes to the extreme and the excess and treats Israel differently than other countries, it becomes anti-Semitic. And that's what you're seeing happen at Cornell now. And that's the, the fever on the campus. And then the, the third thing is you've got to take this issue away from the current senior administration because they helped create the problem. The board of trustees needs to appoint an independent commission to look into these problems on campus. Have you gotten any response from those three things? No, and I know that media multiple times have reached out to Cornell for comment on my proposal, and Cornell has declined to comment every single time. So what needs to happen more in an immediate sense right here? Of course, you're addressing some of the underlying issues. Yeah, well, I think the Cornell administration needs to send a message that the gross demonization of Israel, which should be considered anti-Semitic when it is in excess the way that it is now, is anti-Semitism, and that it should deal with that the way it would deal with anything else that it would be sort of um, demonization of uh, groups on campus that violates the student code. Uh, I'm all for free speech, but Cornell has student codes, and if they're going to enforce it for one group, they should enforce it for all groups. They want to have a wide open free speech campus, great. But you can't regulate speech that you like and then punish speech you don't like, which is what Cornell does now. Professor Jacobson, these students are leaving campus. They're afraid to sleep in their rooms. Do they have any resources to help them complete their coursework while dealing through all this? I don't know what Cornell is offering to them, but that really is you know, a Band-Aid. That's a fix, and certainly if there's any support that can be given to students, I'm in favor of that. But I think Cornell really needs to get a handle on you know, the poisonous ideology which has now inflicted campus where everything is viewed through a racial lens. And Jews on campus get put into the demonized white category. And that's what you see in the anti-Israel movement on campus. They organize around race. They organize what they call students of color against white Israel. And that is a poisonous atmosphere. This administration is, seems to be oblivious to it. And it's not enough after there is a problem. After a student who, from all accounts, has no prior history of this, gets radicalized on campus and repeats these talking points that you hear all the time on campus, administration needs to wake up. Professor Bill Jacobson and also the founder of the Legal Insurrection, thank you so much for your time. Great, thank you. Mayors of several big cities are heading to Washington today. They're looking to put pressure on the federal government to offer more help with the surge in illegal immigrants. 
The rise is overwhelming in many of the city's budgets and services. The entourage is comprised of Democratic mayors, including from New York City and Chicago, as well as Denver Mayor Michael Johnston, who is leading the group. Several of the officials, including the mayors from Los Angeles and Houston, wrote a letter to the administration ahead of the trip to plead their case. They asked for a meeting with President Biden, as well as additional aid and a quicker path to work authorization. The mayors described the situation in their cities as unsustainable. While the group will likely meet with administration officials and members of Congress, it's not clear if the mayors will talk with the president. Several other mayors of major cities are also putting pressure on the administration, despite not participating in today's visit. And now over to business news. WeWork is a company that provides office space services. Its shares tanked nearly 50% to a record low on Wednesday. This is following media reports that the company was planning to file for bankruptcy as early as next week. So here with us live to discuss this is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, good morning as always. Great to see you. What went wrong with WeWork? Well, Evelyn, at the end of the day, uh, it wanted to be something special, but the company was simply no different than any other place where you could rent an office. Um, so, you know, it wasn't special enough. Uh, the business model uh, wasn't unique. It didn't help uh, that when the pandemic happened, everybody started working from home, and we're still seeing that now with uh, shortened we work weeks uh, for many firms. So, you know, on top of all of this, uh, WeWork has been struggling with a heavy debt load and hefty losses for a number of years now. Uh, it was once privately valued at $47 billion, and now it only has a market capitalization of just about $121 million. Um, WeWork is considering filing uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy in New Jersey. Uh, this is according to a Wall Street Journal report. So yeah, some info for you here. Yeah, in the business arena, you always got to set yourself apart. So what led to this point? Can you give us some context of the situation, Don? Yeah, so this uh, potential bankruptcy filing comes after a series of setbacks for the company ever since 2019. Um, actually, that's when its IPO plans imploded uh, due to skepticism over its business model, um, which, by the way, uh, its business model was essentially simply taking long-term leases and renting them out for short-term. Uh, WeWork uh, finally went public in 2021 at a much reduced valuation and the company uh, sunk billions in efforts to prop up the startup. But, you know, it never turned a profit. The company actually lost over 90% of its value this year. Oh, yes. The WeWork story really took us on quite the roller coaster ride. Um, so what, what else do you have for us today? Sure. Um, the U.S. is working to reduce dependence on China for critical and rare earth minerals. The State Department announced it will partner with Securing America's Future Energy Foundation, or SAFE for short. Uh, this nonprofit will be the department's sole partner in the move. Uh, the group adheres to ESG, or Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance Standards, strategies which emphasize green technologies and social justice issues. Critics say it forces left-leaning ideologies on society by declaring which companies should receive investments based off their ESG score. Uh, so a bit of that, uh, just that's it from me this morning. Yeah, well, when you think about these green technologies, you got to think about where that source material is. And a lot of that is manufactured in China. So, right. yeah, Don Ma, yeah, for sure. Always great talking to you. Host of NTD yeah. Business. Thanks. 
Always a pleasure to be here. Moving on with topics, a Black Lives Matter activist has been sentenced to two and a half years in prison. The BBC reports that Zahara Salim was found guilty of funneling tens of thousands of dollars from her charity into her personal bank account. The 23-year-old was the director of a charity that benefited disadvantaged youth in Bristol, UK. She allegedly used the money to fund an expensive lifestyle. She was also an organizer of a Black Lives Matter protest in June 2020 in response to the death of George Floyd. The protest saw a statue of Edward Colston, a slave trader, getting toppled and thrown into Bristol Harbor. Before the protest, Salim set up a fundraising page to support the BLM march. She raised nearly $40,000, which she transferred to her personal bank accounts. According to a judge, Salim made over 2,500 payments between June 2020 and September 2021. The money was spent on various items, such as a new iPhone, hair and beauty appointments, clothing and other purchases. Salim pleaded guilty to fraud charges. Coming up, global leaders met in an AI summit in the UK yesterday. Countries like China are trying to push for their own rules when it comes to governing AI. The Chinese Communist Party extends its propaganda into South Korea in an effort to cancel Shen Yun performances in major theaters in Seoul. Good to have you back. China is willing to enhance communication with all sides on AI regulation. That's according to China's Vice Minister of Science and Technology, Wu Jiaohui. At the Global Artificial Intelligence Summit in Britain yesterday, Wu said all nations have the right to develop and use the advanced technology. He also called for, quote, global cooperation to share AI knowledge and make AI technologies available to the public. China has been pushing for its own rules governing generative AI. The distinct form of AI is trained to create human-like written and visual content. World intelligence leaders have warned about China's intellectual property theft and say the risk is even bigger with the help from the technology. Meanwhile, major Chinese tech giants are pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into the Chinese rival to OpenAI, the owner of ChatGPT. And South Korea is lowering the curtain on an American performance. Major theaters in Seoul now declining to host Shen Yun, a New York-based arts group that offers a glimpse of China before communism. Our investigation reveals that the Chinese embassy in Seoul has admitted to advising theaters to cancel the show. In a recorded phone call, the embassy spokesperson spoke not only about intervening, but also defaming the company. Here's what he said. That the Chinese embassy has been informing the Korean side of Chinese position against the, the Shenyun performance. I see. So, do you guys do not respect the Korean, uh, South Korean sovereignty in terms of uh, respecting fundamental human dignity and freedom of expression? No, we respect their their sovereignty. We just tell them the truth that they don't know. But there's also been uh, economic pressure through various channels uh, threatening Korean entities and, and, and government-related uh, theaters. It, it's just, it's beyond just letting them no, know. No, no, we never, like, threaten them, or I think the, the, the thing you said is, like, uh, out of the truth. But what's the truth about the arts group? 
Here's what we know. Shen Yun describes its mission as to revive China's five millennia old traditional culture, which has been largely destroyed under decades of communist rule. The group's performers also practice Falun Gong, a meditation discipline that's persecuted by the Chinese regime. Some of the company's members say they personally fled religious persecution or have family members imprisoned in China. The embassy spokesperson went on to say they will continue to urge the South Korean government to cancel the show. So your, your official policy is still to advise um, the South Korean government to uh, not allow Shen Yun in their country? We just suggest them they should uh, know more about the truth about the Shen Yun performing arts. We just uh, introduce the, the truth of the Shen Yun performing arts and also the Falun Gong. Okay? And what is the truth about Falun Gong? Well, you know, Falun Gong is an anti-social organization seriously violates human rights. How does Falun Gong violate human rights? Well, I have a meeting like five minutes later, so I don't think I have too much time to explain the, the, too much about Falun Gong. Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, is a peaceful cultivation practice based on the principles of truth, compassion, and tolerance. It was once promoted by Beijing and state media as part of a nationwide Qigong movement for health and well-being. That's until the Chinese regime turned the state against the practice in 1999 and started mass jailing and torturing the group. Shen Yun now tours in nearly 200 cities and 20 countries every year where Beijing's campaigns to censor the show have failed. A look to Halloween festivities. While American kids were going door to door to hunt for candy, people in China were letting their creativity flourish with fancy costumes. Some even dressed up to mock authorities. While police looked on, NTD Sam Wang has more. After years of draconian pandemic lockdown measures, Halloween in China has finally been resurrected from the dead. On Tuesday, partygoers dressed in costumes flooded the streets of Shanghai, marking the city's largest gathering in almost a year. Though all COVID-19 restrictions are now lifted, those who endured them seemingly haven't let their frustration with them go. <laughs> How about some free healthcare services? Here's a reveler dressed as a pandemic worker conducting PCR tests to a dinosaur. And no one can get away with not wearing a mask, not even the spooky twins from the 1980 horror film The Shining. Images circulating online showed a woman draped in sheets of paper in reference to the white paper protest against the Chinese regime's censorship during lockdowns. And watch your back, because a surveillance camera is keeping a close eye on what's happening while being closely watched by authorities. Don't forget to say hello to Winnie the Pooh. You won't get to see him very often in China. The cartoon was banned by the regime after many compared the character to Chinese leader Xi Jinping. But it was all fun and games until police stepped in. Some ended up getting taken away by authorities for their costumes or simply for drawing a crowd. The last big gathering in Shanghai happened last November, when thousands across the country railed against the regime's zero-COVID lockdown. Protests in China are rare since those who speak out against the CCP often meet with retaliation from authorities. But calls of dystopia aside, at least the city still has Batman. Sam Wang, NTD News. 
That giant cotton swap that sent me. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a visual story that really paints the picture of what was government overreach in China. And I mean, when you see welding doors shut of the actual apartment buildings in Wuhan during this outbreaks, right. people need to be able to move and get out and have food and live their life while they obviously protect themselves from the virus. Seems like that really sent people over the edge. That's an, that's happening in a country where, I don't know, a year or two ago, a woman was sentenced to seven months in prison for mocking the country's heroes on the internet. Yeah, it's surprising that they were able to get away with it, you know, Winnie the Pooh costume and things like that. Yeah, like you said, right, a lot of um, all this government overreach, ruling with an iron fist, really, and then the two, three years of COVID policies that seems like really people had enough, and then the Qatar World Cup games where they saw people on TV, thousands, out and about. Anyway, they we have are to heading speak to- their mind. Yeah, we're heading to break now. So who are the Houthi rebels and how powerful are they? They have joined the war, fighting Israel, which is defending itself by intercepting their missiles. An analyst familiar with the region breaks this down for us when we come back. And now we're going to talk about the Houthis here. So an analysis on the recent attacks by them on Israel. The group used to be designated as a foreign terrorist organization by the U.S. Avi Malamed, a former Israeli intelligence official and author of the book Inside the Middle East, Entering a New Era, gives us an update. Avi Malamed, thank you so much for your time today. What can be said about the interception of the missile launched by the Houthis? Well, the interception is an um, operational success for Israel for uh, one of its um, intercepting um, uh, system called the Arrow system. This is a system that has been developed um, together by Israel and the United States, and it aims actually to intercept um, uh, ballistic missiles, uh, long-range and heavy missiles. Uh, the system, the Arrow system, the Arrow um, interceptor missile has different version. Uh, the most recent one is known as um, Aero sign four. This drone and missile barrage by the Houthis is basically an act of declaring war. Yes, and it was encompassed by formal announcement by the Houthis that they have declared war on the state of Israel. Uh, for people who may su be surprised or ask what Yemen has to do with the story of Israel in Gaza, reminding us Yemen is more than 1,000 miles away from Israel, the answer for that is the Houthis are one of the Iranian-backed armies of terror that are scattered in the region. And the Iranians are actually now activating the Houthis in an attempt to deter Israel from expanding its attack against Hamas in Gaza Strip, and also as a way to try and to deter America, uh, the United States of America, from a possibly intervention in a war, if the war is going to be expanded. Do you expect Israel to continue its defensive posture intercepting these missiles or to take an offensive stance? It seems to me that for the time being, the Israeli uh, policymakers are focused in the major task, which is the story of Gaza. Uh, and as long as Israel can continue and successfully intercept these incoming uh, missiles and drones uh, launched by the Houthis, it seems to me like Israel will focus more on the defensive side. I think it's also in American interest at this point to try and to contain that as long as, of course, we can, we can intercept these uh, incoming attacks. Up until now, we had 100% success of interception. The question, of course, will be what will happen if we will miss one. Yes, and how powerful is the Houthi group? 
The Houthis very powerful. They are massively supported by the Iranians. Actually, the Iranians, uh, the missiles and the drones the Houthis are using are all Iranian-made. Uh, the, the Iranians are generously supporting the Houthis with um, missiles and drones and all the uh, newest uh, inventory of um, uh, Iranian weapon, uh, weapons and ammunition. Uh, and so it's a very dangerous um, factor, reminding us all that the Houthis are also located in Yemen in a very, very strategic location. They are uh, in, in proximity to the Red Sea, the major route that connects the Indian Ocean and the Middle East and the eastern uh, basin of the Mediterranean. They are sitting close to the Bab el-Mandab Strait, one of the most significant strategic locations on this planet. Some 60% of the whole maritime um, uh, traffic is going through this narrow, narrow passage. The Houthis already back in the past attacked Saudi Arabia, they attacked Yemen, uh, they attacked the United Arab Emirates, they attacked maritime and American ships in the, in the area of uh, the Red Sea and the Bab el-Mandab Strait. They are presenting a very significant threat. This is one of the major proxies that the Iranian regime is operating across the Middle East. Well, thank you so much for your update. Avi Malamed, former Israeli senior official on Arab affairs, thank you. Thank you. Well, very interesting and insightful um, interview. So thank you for that. Yeah, and another interesting thing about the Houthis is that they, they may even be attacking Israel out of their own self-interest because if they can rally up enough local support by showing that they're going to fight Israel and that they're going with this Palestinian cause, they may be able to gain more power. Right. Um, so thank you for that addition as well. We're, with a look at the clock, we have to he uh, head to the second part of our broadcast right now. A second strike on the Jabalia refugee camp, the IDF claiming another Hamas commander taken out, and another visit by State Secretary Antony Blinken, a former diplomatic advisor, previews the trip. The Senate passes a bill to prevent U.S. funds from benefiting Chinese companies. We speak to an expert for more details on how it will affect China. Indicted Congressman George Santos says it's a victory for due process after a group of Democrats vote to keep him on the job. And 23 Republicans come to Representative Rashida Tlaib's defense. A group of big city mayors is heading to Washington today. They are looking to put pressure on the Biden administration over what they call an unsustainable situation with illegal immigrants in their cities. Good morning, and to those of you just joining us, I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning from me as well, I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Thursday, November 2nd, and we're getting right into our top stories. Some Americans finally allowed to leave Gaza, and another strike in a refugee camp targeting Hamas leaders. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken will be making a second visit to Israel following the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack. Earlier, I spoke to Aryeh Lightstone, a former senior advisor to the U.S. Ambassador to Israel, to get some analysis. Blinken is calling for a revitalized Palestinian authority to govern Gaza after the war if Israel succeeds in toppling Hamas. How likely is Israel to support that idea? Uh, zero percent out of 100. Uh, the revitalized Palestinian authority still has a law on their books, uh, colloquially known as pay to slay. They pay families of terrorists additional money based upon the amount of Jews and civilians that they kill. 
I think Israel learned a valuable lesson on October 7th when people say that they wish to murder you, one should pay attention to them. There is no appetite for any two-state solution based upon the current parameters of the Palestinian and their bankrupt leadership. So what's an alternative to that idea? Well, one of the things that we have to do in the West is look at how this came about. We still have this thing called a refugee camp. How are people who live in a Palestinian-controlled uh, area for the last 17 years still considered refugees? Based upon what? And they are still educated based upon UN refugee uh, policies that teach hate. So if we want to undo this crisis of hatred, this crisis of, of bar barbarism, then we need to begin at the very root. And how do we educate people correctly? How do we grow them correctly? And how do we ultimately run a place that they want to live? So does Israel have any desire to participate in the governing of Gaza after the war? Zero. Uh, they would like the Palestinians to figure this out themselves. They would like other regional entities to come up and to step up to the forefront. But at the end of the day, both of those are highly unlikely. So we have to get creative in terms of what we can do so we don't return to this, what they like to call a cycle of violence. It's not a cycle of terrorism uh, by Hamas. And Blinken is also calling on regional partners and international agencies to be involved in governing Gaza. In the meantime, how can they help? Well, the first thing that should have happened three weeks ago is Egypt should have completely and unconditionally opened up the Rafa case. People say that uh, Gaza is completely surrounded by Israel. That's factually inaccurate. There is a legitimate and large border with Egypt. Egypt immediately should have allowed any Palestinian or anybody in Gaza to leave, set up refugee and humanitarian options for them there, and allow Israel to defeat Hamas and, as they say, liberate the Palestinians uh, from these terrorists. So Blinken is saying that there's about 400 Americans still in Gaza and they want to get out. And he's saying that Hamas is preventing them from doing so. Do you expect his visit to contain some efforts to help them leave? Absolutely. I do believe that Blinken cares about each and every American and will apply what pressure he can. Unfortunately, President Biden's last trip to the region, Egypt, Jordan, and the Palestinian Authority all canceled meetings with him. If they won't meet with our president, how much leverage do you think that we have over those countries? The Senate just passed an amendment by Senator Josh Hawley that no U.S. appropriated money will go to, the Chinese, go to Chinese companies or companies that are controlled by China. It was passed 61 to 36. There are some critics, though, that have concerns about the consequences it could have. So we're bringing in Antonio Graceffo to find out more. He's a China analyst and author of Beyond the Belt and Road, China's Global Economic Expansion. Good morning, Antonio. Good to see you, as always. Now, first, for some context, how significantly do you think um, did China benefit so far from these appropriations without this amendment? How, how large in scope? Well, China has benefited quite a lot. There's a lot of Chinese companies, and then they are either linked to the government, directly owned by the government, owned by government agencies. So this is money that is effectively flowing back to China because the profits from these companies repatriated back to China, and this money is used to develop the PLA and to develop uh, China's aggressive capabilities. So um, in that sense, maybe we could, is, it, uh, is it fair to say that there was quite a bit of exchange going? Because Senator Patty Murray says that the amendment would have unintended consequences for the U.S. as well, like being able to get pharmaceuticals, medical devices, or even school lunches was mentioned. So how much do those essential products are, 
actually come from China, would this be an issue? Well, the critics are correct that uh, we are clearly buying these products. That means there is a demand for these products. There's some reason why China's selling them, and we are buying them. That means that we need them. However, if there's demand for a product and people are willing to pay for it, an American producer will then produce that product or will source it from Mexico or will source it from Vietnam or India or some other other country. But, uh, yeah, you're, you're going to find that when you cut off um, uh, Chinese sellers of certain products, we're going to have to uh, re-divert our demand. But it won't be a problem to, uh, to fill that demand. Oh, okay. So um, there was also criticism that it should be considered more carefully what the different, conse different consequences would be um, in the light of what you just said as well because of this amendment. So what kind of impacts do you think this could have on China compared to the U.S.? I think the big thing is it sends a very significant uh, message to China saying that the U.S. is de-risking. We're in the process of decoupling from China. Uh, we, we are sending that message every day, every time we make another restriction. I think that uh, we're going to eliminate some of the investment and uh, trade opportunities for China, which will uh, decrease the income that's flowing to the CCP. But I think the really big thing is just that it is a step towards this gradual decoupling. And uh, so I, I think it's definitely moving in the right direction. So um, about the decoupling, how far do you think have we come so far? And um, what still needs to be done since the years um, that while many say Trump have, uh, has kick-started this decoupling, it's been a few years, so how far have we come? Yeah, it definitely started with Trump, and initially the uh, Democrats were criticizing Trump, saying he was being too hard on China. As it turns out, Biden has continued uh, the Trump tariffs. He's increased the tariffs, increased the restrictions. He made the, ch the chip ban. We're definitely moving in the right direction. He's taken a lot of steps. I think one of the problems with implementation, though, is that it's very hard to define exactly what a Chinese company is or a Chinese government company is because these companies are, first of all, most of them are incorporated in the Cayman Islands or someplace else. Uh, they might be registered in New York. I know there was a there was a Chinese biolab that was discovered in California. It was registered um, officially operating in New York, but it was uh, incorporated in the Cayman Islands. So I think that it's going to take a lot of due, due diligence, investigation to determine which companies really are Chinese companies. And I think one of the problems is going to be at the state level, that if this is passed at the federal level, the states may lack the uh, investigative abilities to make these decisions before allocating funds to these companies. So I think it's a, a step in the right direction. I think it's telling Americans what we need to do. Um, the implementation has to be uh, worked out. Right. Uh, very good point that not all of them are just in plain sight. Thank you so much, Antonio Graceffo. I really appreciate your analysis as always. Thank you very much for having me. The House of Representatives shot down another attempt to expel Congressman George Santos yesterday. 31 Democrats voted against his removal. GOP members blocked Democrats' attempt in May and opted to send it to the House Ethics Committee instead. Santos is accused of 23 federal crimes, including conspiracy, money laundering, and wire fraud. He has pleaded not guilty and says he will not resign. Here's Santos after the vote. The fact that we had today more Democrats than Republicans vote and believe in that tells you everything we need to know. This country is divided. I'm not claiming a victory. I'm just saying that this is a victory for the process. Due process won today, not George Santos. The House also shot down a resolution to send your Representative Rashida Tlaib. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene introduced the resolution. 
That was over accusations of anti-Semitic activity and sympathizing with terrorist organizations. Green also accused Tlaib of leading an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol complex. 23 Republicans came to her defense along with all Democrats. Some took issue with their insurrection language used by Green. Representative Chip Roy called the resolution deeply flawed in a post on X. He wrote that it made legally and factually unverified claims, specifically the claim of insurrection. Coming up, is housing men who identify as women in female prisons violating women's rights and putting them in danger? NTD spoke with Women's Liberation Front to find out more. Mayors of several big U.S. cities are heading to Washington today. The aim is to put more pressure on the Biden administration to deal with the growing illegal immigration crisis. Stay tuned for that. Welcome back. Men housed in women's prison if identify if they identify as female. Critics of the California law say it violates women's rights and puts them in danger. Entity's Daniel Monahan spoke with the Women's Liberation Front and the lead counsel in their lawsuit challenging the law. The California law to allow men who identify as women to be housed in women's prisons was sponsored by Senator Scott Weiner and signed by Governor Gavin Newsom in 2020. Women's Liberation Front Executive Director Sharon Byrne. What it does is it um, places men in women's prisons without women's consent. Byrne highlights the danger the law represents for women by citing the case of Isla Bryson. Bryson is a double rapist convicted in Scotland early this year. The convict says he changed genders after his arrest while awaiting trial. After conviction, the violent sexual offender was initially sent to a women's prison. Which got the entire country into an absolute uproar and pretty much toppled Nicola Sturgeon out of the leadership of being first minister of Scotland, right? That a great many sort of everyday people on the street had a lot of difficulty with understanding why anyone would think it was a good idea, you know, to place someone, um, in, you know, place a, a violent male who'd been convicted of sexual offenses into a woman's prison. Another case Byrne mentions is California triple murderer Dana Rivers, a man who identifies as a woman. Rivers was convicted of murdering a lesbian couple, stabbing one of them 40 times, and gunning down their 19-year-old son. The convict was sent to a women's prison. Byrne says a major issue with the law is that it has no safeguards against prisoners who are deceiving the state for an easier prison sentence served with women. So that is part of the problem with what gender ideology demands. It demands no debate, no questioning, right? And then that gets you into these insane situations where you're writing laws to basically house violent, you know, sexual offenders and with women. <laughs> and that makes no sense. The Women's Liberation Front filed a lawsuit to challenge the law in 2021. Lead counsel Lauren Bone says requesting to be housed in a women's prison is easy. Prisoners just fill out a housing request form. Bone says the prisons provide no safe space for women housed with men. Eight people to a cell. It was built for four. The bathroom is in there, the toilet, the shower. There's these saloon doors, so it only covers up the middle part. The middle parts um, and six foot tall men can see right over it and do so uh, yeah there's no safety there's no privacy um, even 
assault aside, there's rampant sexual harassment, voyeurism, exhibitionism. The attorney says the law allows prisoners who identify as transgender or non-binary additional housing privileges of choice. So normally you can't go and say, I do want to be housed with this person, even if it's your best friend. Um, but they can come in and they can request whatever housing um, they are required by the law to have their perceptions of their own safety given great consideration. And so, yes, they do pick their own cellmates. Senator Scott Weiner posted a series of tweets pushing back on criticism of the law he sponsored, writing, quote, Despite the false anti-trans narrative that trans women are faking it and trying to scam their way into women's spaces, the reality is trans women are far more likely to be victimized by violence. We need to ensure trans women in prison are treated with dignity and housed safely. Wiener further criticized what he views as the slow implementation of the law, writing, Few trans women have been transferred to women's prisons, and a number of those have been targeted by guards and subject to false claims of sexual violence. A recent Cal Matters report stated that the number of transgender, intersex, and non-binary inmates increased by 234% compared to 2017. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Now on to New York, where illegal immigration is fueling the rise of a new red light district in the city. That's according to Mayor Eric Adams, who spoke at his weekly press briefing on October 31st. Adams said that this serves as just one example of the impact the ongoing border crisis has on his city. Entity's Cost Temines has more. Prostitutes soliciting in public is becoming an increasingly more common scene at the now notorious stretch of Roosevelt Avenue in Corona, Queens. New York Mayor Eric Adams acknowledged the rise in prostitution taking place involves mostly illegal immigrant women. This was brought to my attention uh, by local leaders a few months ago, and I went out there, I think around about 1, 1.30 a.m., and it was clear that there were uh, illegal activity uh, taking place there. The issue is not confined just to nighttime hours, but also during the day when children are coming out of school. Many of the women are reportedly illegal immigrants who have recently arrived from Venezuela. It is unclear if they have been trafficked and coerced into sex exploitation. According to Adams, the city has also identified another location of concern in Brooklyn. He said his office would focus on giving assistance to those women and prosecuting their patrons. Adams then proceeded to criticize elected officials who are in favor of legalizing prostitution, adding that this is where idealism collides with realism. Uh, they believe it is a victimless crime, and I've had elected officials tell me that the women are just trying to work while you trying to harm them. Uh, there are real issues around illegal sex work, uh, not only uh, the, from STDs to uh, sex trafficking to young girls getting involved with it to violence. Uh, you know, so people who don't understand how serious this is, uh, they are impeding our progress. In New York, prostitution is considered a Class B misdemeanor carrying a punishment of up to three months in prison and a fine. Meanwhile, patronizing a prostitute is a Class A misdemeanor, punishable by up to one year in prison and a fine. 
From September, Venezuelans who entered the United States on or before July 31st were granted Temporary Protected Status, or TPS, for 18 months. During this period, eligible Venezuelan nationals could apply for employment and travel authorization and are protected from deportation. But some have voiced concerns that the new TPS policy would backfire and exacerbate illegal border crossings. Mayor Adams recently warned that the illegal immigration crisis will destroy the city. Cost MNS, NTD News. Mayors of several big cities are heading to Washington today. They're looking to put pressure on the federal government to offer more help with the surge in illegal migrants. The rise is overwhelming many of the city's budgets and services. The entourage is comprised of Democratic mayors, including from New York City and Chicago, as well as Denver Mayor Michael Johnston, who's leading the group. Several of the officials, including the mayors from Los Angeles and Houston, wrote a letter to the administration ahead of the trip to plead their case. They asked for a meeting with President Biden, as well as additional aid and a quicker path to work authorization. The mayors described the situation in their cities as unsustainable. While the group will likely meet with administration officials and members of Congress, it's not clear if the mayors will talk with the president. Several other mayors of major cities are also putting pressure on the administration despite not participating in today's visit. And New York Attorney General Letitia James announced today two settlements totaling $328 million with Uber and Lyft. Both cases accuse the rideshare companies of cheating drivers out of hundreds of millions of dollars, according to a statement from her office. The settlements follow a multi-year investigation. They found the companies withheld certain pay from drivers and prevented them from receiving some benefits available under New York labor laws. As part of the settlements, Uber will pay some $290 million and Lyft will pay about $38 million into two separate funds. The money will be distributed as back pay to current and former drivers. The two companies will also be required to provide guaranteed paid sick leave and implement a minimum earnings floor. Over to D.C., D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser announced a pilot program that will provide residents with free tracking tags for their vehicles. People living in areas with the biggest jump in car thefts will receive a tag to install in their vehicles. The tags should help police locate and recover stolen vehicles to catch thieves. Metropolitan Police data shows D.C. crime jumped by 27 percent between 2022 and 2023. Motor vehicle theft doubled in the same time period. Homicides increased by 31% and robbery and theft numbers also spiked. The pilot program is the latest initiative to improve public safety and catch more criminals. Yeah, serious spike in car theft. And the thieves are getting creative too, so I think a tag could get a, go a long way. Yeah, that's one step. And of course, there's the deterrence of the law and punishment as another right. motive, you know, another way to rein this in. Of course, yeah. All right, uh, we have to wrap up our show now, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for a News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.